made so many blunders on this um, podcast, which makes me kind of wonder, should I just scrap it because of how many (laughs) mistakes I've made that maybe it's not meant to be, but I'm going to try one more time, one more time. So anyways, this is a difficult topic and it's, it's one that I've done, you know, six different times because I think it's so broad that you can get stuck going down different, different paths, right? And so I'm trying to focus on one area and I'll explain why. And it has to do with um, the podcast um, title, which is all the way up to 40 weeks. I actually think this is a sleight of hand. And I think this is very Trumpian uh, for Democrats uh, to do. And this is just one of my, you know, conspiracy theories, right? I love conspiracy theories. So anyways, here's my little conspiracy theory that's very Trumpian. Trump, uh, a Trumpian tactic is to throw out something very extreme, right? Very extreme that they possibly don't really even mean to get to something else that they really want. All right, so here's my sleight of hand Trumpian extremeness. It is very shocking to think that in our country, People uh, are going to allow for the abortion of late-term abortion, which is 7th, 8th, and ninth months, okay? And that is shocking lots of people, several people. And really, this puts us in category of China, North Korea, Cuba. Not a great list, right, of human rights and stuff. But if we allow for 7th, 8th, and ninth months with, with some of these bills, New York just signed a bill. Andrew Cuomo did. Virginia, uh, just uh, two days ago, so it's January 31st today, 2019, just two days ago, they showed the video of Virginia Democratic um, legislature on the state level proposing her bill and kind of answering questions on it. And the back and forth with those questions really caught the media's attention that, again, this is another bill where it allows for all the way up to 40 weeks, the t- aborting a baby all the way up to 40 weeks, which literally means delivering the baby and then taking the life after the baby's even delivered. So so that's what it is. So and, and there's a federal legislation called the Women's Health Protection Act. And this this is also in there as well. But that one, I believe, is really what they're trying to get to. Okay, so now we have this extreme shocking the core of many Americans going, what? We can't abort 7th, 8th, and ninth, And so then they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, so no, no, no doing that. But really what we want are no restrictions on abortions for those other time periods. And that's what I think is kind of the sleight of hand. So... To give a perspective, seventh, eighth, and ninth months of pregnancies, it does happen. It doesn't happen very often. The majority are the first trimester, and of course, now it's leaked over into the second trimester. What they are going for are no restrictions. 
And so the focus of this podcast are is on why restrictions are important, why restrictions matter, why we want restrictions, and the fact that there is absolutely no constitutional right that you have that doesn't have a restriction. So it's it's perfectly normal to have restrictions, but what's being proposed now, especially the Women's Health Protection Act by Democratic senators who've co-sponsored the bill, they are as well, you know, uh, 2020 hopefuls, Kamala Harris, Christine Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren, even Bernie Sanders, um, is that they don't want any state to have any restrictions on abortion. And that's where you're just kind of going, I'm scratching my head going, why? So I want to throw this out there, why restrictions matter, why you should advocate for restrictions and have that discussion and talk about it. Not to say that they're not being serious about the 7th, 8th, and 9th. I do think they're also being serious about that. I just think that we can't lose sight of the restrictions aspect of the bill, that that is equally important um, to this bill because it it uh, the consequences of it of allowing unfettered access to an abortion is not uh, the best way to go and that's essentially what would happen especially with this federal legislation so for example what if you know people gun right activists were appealing for the same thing to have no restrictions on their right to bear arms which by the way is actually written in the Constitution you know uh, Roe v Wade is a court created constitutional right so gun right activists what if they were saying I should have no limits on buying guns owning guns getting guns now we all see what a dumb idea that is and not even they advocate for that that's the irony with some of this is is a constitutional right actually written in the Constitution they realize the possible bad consequences of unrestricted access to guns. Not only that, let me throw out that federal taxpayers will also help these people own guns. So you're going, huh, that, that's a dumb idea. Of course it is. Of course it's a dumb idea. And no one's even suggesting it because it's a dumb idea. I do not know of one single constitutional right that does not have a restriction. Even free speech has restrictions. There are court cases that have shown that for example, a person cannot walk into a crowded room and yell fire when they know there's not a fire because of the imminent danger that can happen with that mob scattering mentality. People can get hurt and it's happened and it has happened. So the point is you can't say, oh, it's my free speech to say anything. No, there are restrictions. Every single right has a restriction. Yet right now, because of, of this weird argument around abortion, people believe on that side there should be no restrictions. That's where we should our eyes should pop and go, how does that make sense? So I want to focus on why restrictions are normal in any constitutional right and why they're necessary. Restrictions do not prevent the person from making a good decision or making a bad decision. It simply prevents them from making the decision in one day. There are really good reasons 
why we should make women stop and think about an abortion before they make the decision. So certain big decisions, they are seen as having really big consequences like divorce. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example with marriage as well. Uh, a lot of times they have waiting periods. So marriage in the beginning was known as a fault divorce. So in order to get a divorce, you had to meet a requirement of seven different, you know, a list of seven different things that for fault divorces, like for example, infidelity, of course, abuse, physical abuse was on there as well. But anyways, if you didn't meet one of those, you really couldn't get a divorce. 1968 comes and then Governor Ronald Reagan of California signs a bill that allows for no fault divorces. There are still restrictions on that though, but it opened the door for irreconcilable differences, which you saw a spike in divorces after that uh, because it was easier. It was more available, but still, even in 1968, and each of the different states enacted that, they still had restrictions. Like, for example, waiting periods. You had to wait a certain amount of time before you know it can truly come to an end. Or you also had mandatory counseling. And so some of these restrictions were seen as good you know, because of the potential risks to children of divorce. So for example, in the book, The Case for Marriage by Linda Waite and Maggie Gallagher, they show that there is evidence that divorce itself causes problems for children. They explain, in a snapshot, the risk of divorce and unwed childbearing look like this. Children raised in a single parent households are on average more likely to be poor to have health problems and psychological disorders, to commit crimes and exhibit other conduct disorders, have somewhat poorer relationships with both family and peers, and as adults eventually get fewer years of education and enjoy less stable marriages and lower occupational statuses than children whose parents got and stayed married. Now, this does not mean divorce should not happen. All this means is that the state has an interest and helping couples really make sure this is the road they want to take or need to take or have to take, whatever. It is argued that now it has evolved into something where it's too easy to get a divorce. And it is. I've, as, as an attorney, I've done divorces. And it is too easy to get a divorce. It's cheap, actually, as well. If you, if you aren't fighting each other, it's also cheap. Laws like mandatory counseling has gone away. And so you now see an even greater spike in divorce rates. So again, this legislation of restrictions does not prevent divorce. It is just intended for people involved to understand the consequences of their decision. And we've made it much easier for them not to think too much about it. This isn't meant to guilt anybody. Uh, there are real reasons uh, for divorce. It's just meant to show that there are also consequences. Even without, out, out of their control, there are consequences to it. So it's helping them to make sure that they understand the consequences as best as they can. And this really is what many of the re abortion restrictions try to do. They try to mandate counseling or at least being told some of the effects that can happen. 
these type of measures to the opposite side are seen as an undue burden. This is like a key phrase in constitutional law that with your constitutional right, it cannot be an undue burden on your right. And that is ever growing, uh, expanding definition that it just is for certain rights, it's different than for others. It just seems to be that way. For example, for an undue burden, what used to be an undue burden was a poll tax, okay? A poll tax that was in the Deep South after Jim Crow made it very difficult for African Americans to vote uh, because they had this poll tax. Now, the, the poll tax in and of itself is not wrong or an undue burden. The amount of the poll tax was the undue burden. They, the amount was, it was like equivalent to like a month's worth of wages for African Americans, which made it very difficult for them to pay it to vote. And so they ended up not doing it. So the Voting Rights Act in 1965, uh, which was targeted to those certain areas, when they went in, at the federal government, and implemented the Voting Rights Act, you literally saw in these like counties and places, the voters, uh, African Americans, went from 5% to 65%. It was remarkable. And that's how you saw how it truly was an undue burden. So now you kind of fast forward and you live in a, uh, an amazing day and age with technological advancement and really on the majority prosperity and where basically federal taxes are paying for almost everything and people continue to claim undue burden it's it, it's it's amazing it's getting harder in my opinion it should get harder to do undue burden nowadays but now they're even claiming undue burden on the emotional welfare of somebody if it's giving them an undue burden of creating them emotional stress which i don't even think should be allowed but anyways the sad reality is that there those people who don't want any restrictions on abortion they're not really helping these women who are trying to make this decision and let me explain in 2011 cbs courageously did a report on a study published in the british journal of psychiatry about the mental health risk of women who have abortions the findings really were devastating and this should be talked about more in my opinion the study found the following. Women who had an abortion experienced an 81% increased risk for mental problems. Women who had an abortion were 34% more likely to develop an anxiety disorder, 37 more likely to experience depression, 110% more likely to abuse alcohol, and 155% more likely to commit suicide, and 220% more likely to use marijuana. Now, that last one, again, that was in 2011. Uh, public opinion has since changed about how bad <laughs> marijuana is. So, uh, you know, take that one with a grain of salt, I guess. So as you can imagine, this report was not received well by pro-choice activists at all. Uh, in fact, CBS doesn't talk about it anymore. No one really does. This kind of just went away. But the point is that women should be told the risks. They're big people, they can make their own decisions, but they should be told the risk as if it was potential side effects of a prescription drug. All right, so I'm gonna give you an example of a restriction in Texas. 
So a couple years ago, 2013 to be exact, Texas passed a state law that required an abortion clinic or a you know health clinic to be within a certain distance from an ER because the doctor performing the abortion was required to also have admittance rights to a nearby hospital. I was surprised to, to find out that there were health clinics that were kind of out in the middle of nowhere. But the simple fact is that women have died from abortion procedures at these health clinics, and it could have been prevented if they were close enough to an ER. So for me, in my mind, I don't really think that that is uh, unnecessary to ask that a doctor performing an abortion uh, also had admittance rights to an ER. But what happened was, is that you did see clinics closed down. Lots of clinics closed down in Texas. That just showed you how far clinics were from an ER and the people performing the abortions at those clinics did not have admittance rights to an ER as well. So you saw clinics close and you also saw the numbers of abortions go down. So that, you know, gave pro-choice activists the claim of undue burden. That was proof of undue burden. Now, mind you, we live... 2019 is not very different from 2013. We don't live in 1920 where people don't have cars or traveling by train. You can get to everywhere by train um, or it's expensive to travel. It's not the same thing at all. It's relatively cheap and inexpensive if you really want something to travel an hour for it. So in my mind... This is just not an undue burden. But in 2016, Justice Kennedy joined the court liberals in the 5-3 to three decision to strike down the Texas law. And at that time, it was 5-3 to three instead of 5-4 to four because Scalia had passed away by this time. So here are the justices who voted in 2016. Now, now be thinking of the changes okay, that are happening. Five justices were for it. That's striking it down. Justice Breyer, and he wrote the opinion, Sotomayor, Kagan, Ginsburg, Kennedy. And Ginsburg right now, we know, is ill. Kennedy is gone. So the three justices that were opposed, Thomas, Alito, and Chief Justice Roberts. So in that majority opinion, Justice Breyer, he wrote that, yes, indeed, this was an undue burden, these requirements on women, and they struck it down. So that, that to me is kind of hard to believe. Uh, to be honest, it's making it very easy for for women to not only get an abortion, but to get it paid for. And so in that situation, you're just like, how is this treated the same? And that's actually Justice Thomas in his dissent. That's essentially what he wrote. This is what I find interesting. He wrote, I write separately to emphasize how today's decision perpetuates the court's habit of applying different rules to different constitutional rights, especially the putative right to abortion. So again, we are now in a place where we have treated and talked about this right to abortion, this court-created right, as something that is above and beyond every other right we have. There is no other constitutional right that does not have restrictions. Yet, they're now advocating for no restrictions. Meaning, 
We, you cannot put anything in the way of the woman that would make her feel bad, guilty, make her think about it. They, they don't want any 24-hour requirement, counseling, pamphlet, sonogram, ultrasound, nothing. And that's where um, I think they're doing women a huge disservice because they're pretending that uh, there will be no consequences for this decision. And that's kind of what I want to end with. I want to end with this article that I recently read. It was in October 2018. And it was an anonymous article. It was posted on a British website called Refinery29. I'm not really sure what that means. Maybe 29 is referring to the age. I don't know. But the title of the article says it all. Just because I had an abortion doesn't mean I'm not grieving. That was her title. Her details were fascinating. She is a single woman in her early 30s, someone who celebrated the passage of abortion laws in Ireland. So when Ireland passed it, she went to a pub with her friends and celebrated that. They were all very excited. And she ended up, ironically, getting pregnant. Even though she took precautions, did the morning after pill, she was with a casual buddy and ended up getting pregnant. She details her life of casual relationships filled with the morning after pill, including that night. So this is someone, as so I, I explain all this, this, is someone who celebrates and believes in women's rights and of abortion. And now she found herself pregnant. She agonized over what to do alone and made the decision alone to have an abortion. She then tells her friends later, and they commended her for her difficult decision and even expressed being proud of her. So she was not judged. Again, the reason why I give you these details is to paint the picture. She was not judged. She had easy access to get an abortion. She also believed in a woman's right to make this decision. So despite all that, here is what she writes anonymously. I write this because despite the offer of counseling from, from the clinic, my lack of interaction with somebody who had an abortion meant that nobody had warned me about the guilt, the anger, and the sadness that might follow. Nobody had told me about the crippling fear of never having another chance to be a mom. Nobody had mentioned the resentment I would feel towards others who were pregnant and able to carry their baby to term the sense of injustice I would feel every time I saw or held a baby during the subsequent weeks, the jealousy of seeing strangers in the street pushing a pram, the longing, the grief, the regret. It is time for us to start having an honest, open conversation about abortion and its emotional after effects because until we do, millions of women will continue to find themselves alone and confused when faced by this emotional downpour. And we can do better than that. We really can. So regardless of how you view the right to an abortion, I really hope we can all agree that it is better for women to know all the risks before making such a definitive decision that can affect their life in so many ways. Even those who believe in this right struggled afterwards. I do not judge anyone who makes this decision. I know people who have and I love them regardless. I might disagree that there should be a legal right to do so, but I really do have compassion on anyone who makes this decision. 
I want people to find happiness in this life. And I do not think laws like this will bring happiness to a person's life. But it is my hope to persuade people to think differently and not shame them or belittle anyone with a different opinion. Restrictions are necessary for every constitutional right that we have. I believe this topic is just heating up because of RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is now ill. And uh, everyone's talking about thinking of replacement. And I do wish her well, though, and hope that she does get better and her health does improve. Um, The replacement that some people are murmuring about is a woman, Amy Coney Barrett. And, And to be honest, I think she's amazing. But that is a topic for another time.